Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, our topic is colic, prevention, and early intervention, and it's brought to you by Nightwatch, the first smart halter for horses. If you've been around horses for any length of time, you've probably spent a night on colic duty, monitoring a horse's vital signs and behaviors while getting very little sleep. It's no surprise, considering colic is the number one killer of horses, and times like these are truly life and death. So how can we prevent them from happening in the first place, or how can we intervene early when it does? To help us understand the answers to these questions, we are joined tonight by Drs. Louise Southwood of the University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center, and Dr. Anthony Blixlager, who's with North Carolina State University. So let's go ahead and start with you, Dr. Southwood. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with horses that are colicking? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Um, I'm an emergency um, surgeon, emergency clinician at New Bolton Center. Um, and as I think most of the audience probably knows, colic is probably the most common cause um, for emergencies um, in horses. And so we see a lot. Um, and my interest is mostly, you know, helping owners deal with colic, um, trying to find out ways that we can improve the lives of horses with colic, um, both from a clinical aspect and also um, from a clinical research aspect. Okay. And Dr. Blixlager, what is your experience with colicking horses? Uh, my, my experience started a long time ago in the UK. I remember really clearly this experience of my father's horse. This would have been in the 70s. Had colic for a number of days. They were trying to manage and surgery was not really freely available at that time. I remember they tried this surgery in a stable and that horse didn't make it. And that really stuck with me and that can be a common thing with people who get interested in colic, some sort of experience like that. Um, when I came to the university here, it happens to be in an area that receives a lot of horses with colic, mostly because it's, uh, of its accessibility by highway. And I just got really interested in it from a clinical perspective, trying to understand how it happens, how we rescue horses with it. Um, and then some very similar interest to uh, Dr. Southwood. Okay. So I want to give a quick review of the Ask the Horse Live format. Uh, we're, we're going to start tonight with questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you are listening live and have a question to ask and you're listening via your web browser, you can go ahead and send those questions into us um, via uh, go to a webinar and we'll be responding to those as well. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. So let's go ahead and dive in because we have a huge audience tonight and, and lots of questions to get through. Um, Dr. Blixlogger, I'm going to start with you. We have a question from Lauren in Kansas, and she wants to know what symptoms or clinical signs should I look for to see if my horse is colicking? I think the first thing that the things that get noticed are actually uh, more commonly noticed by owners. So, for instance, they'll say the horse came out of the field in a different order or else didn't come up for its normal feeding or perhaps it didn't finish its meal um, or else uh, horse owners will frequently say the horse just doesn't look right. So those are all behavioral signs of colic, the very earliest evidence of um, something going wrong with the horse. And then it gets into the more classic signs of colic. So that would include pawing, looking around at their flanks. Uh, sometimes then it gets a bit more severe, going down, lying down, and then all the way toward rolling when it gets even more severe after that. Um, and then the owners will sometimes ask, but does the horse know really where? They actually don't. Uh, the, the pain is not very well localized. They just know, essentially, they've just got this sort of oncoming bellyache. Um, and that's how they respond. Do we know, because so many of our horses are so stoic when they're experiencing pain, do we know how much pain a horse is in when they're colicking? Is there any way to quantify that? Um, you know, most, I, I guess, it, most of the ways quantifying it are fairly simple. So I would just try to get people to over the phone when I'm talking to owners or if I'm watching or looking at it myself, try to figure out if it's mild, moderate, severe. So mild is pouring, looking at the flanks. Um, moderate is starting to go down and then severe are the rolling ones. There are um, scoring systems. So there are behavioral scoring systems 
Um, but to be honest, when we're talking uh, to one another over the phone, we'll describe it very much like I've just talked to you about it. Uh, and then just try to put it into these categories. Really what we're after is the mild ones that can be dealt with in the field, the more progressing towards the moderate, severe ones that, that need something um, more in terms of referral, potentially uh, a medical surgical therapy. Dr. Southwood, our next question is for you, and it's from Jeffrey in Austin, Texas. And Jeffrey wants to know how important are taking vital signs when evaluating a horse that might be colicking? Yeah, and I mean, this this can sort of be addressed on two levels. Um, first of all, the owner, um, who's obviously there with the horse initially, and then the vet. As an owner, um, if you feel like you're comfortable getting a horse's heart rate, respiratory rate, and even their rectal temperature, um, that could be good. Um, that's some more information that you can provide your veterinarian over the phone um, when you call him or her and tell them about your horse that's colicking. Um, but you want to make sure that you're actually comfortable, you know, obtaining those numbers, you know, correctly. Um, when the vet comes out, it's absolutely important. And I think, you know, most vets, when they come out and look with, at a horse with a colic, they're going to get their vital signs, um, you know, because, the vital signs, especially things like heart rate, can determine, one, how painful the horse is and also how sick or shocky they are. So those vital signs are important, looking at their heart, getting their heart rate, looking at their mucous membrane color. The other thing is just, so vital signs can be important if you're comfortable getting them accurately. Just to follow up on what Dr. Blixlager said though, you know, some of the other signs are probably more important. So being able to describe to your vet exactly what the horse is doing is going to be able to help that vet determine how painful the horse is. Um, you know, being able to describe sort of the horse's attitude. Um, other things that are really useful is does the horse have abrasions, um, you know, on their head, um, their legs, anything like that to indicate that they've been really painful. Are they sweating? Um, do they have nostril flare? If you look at their nostrils, you know, they're sort of flared and they're breathing really hard. Do they have abdominal distension? Um, that can be really important information that you can um, provide to your veterinarian. Jennifer, our web producer, has shared mm -hmm. a tool uh, for checking vital signs um, that's on right. the horse and the horse.com. So you can check that out. It's a clickable horse and you can see what those rates should be and how to take those. Um, our next question is for Dr. Blixlager and it's from Nick in Canada. And Nick wants to know if there are certain breeds of horses that are more prone to colic. This has actually been looked at a fair bit and um, Overall, not not really. But here's what the, what the one thing that has come up over the years in the literature is the Arabian breed. And but we're not sure if that's because Arabian horses truly get colic more commonly, or uh, alternatively, just because uh, owners of those horses, that breed in particular, is more likely to report colic. It's very difficult to sort out um, bias like that. I think a couple other. Um, Examples I can think of, so um, miniature horses sometimes have a bit more problem that frequently relates to um, dental problems. Um, and then because of that, they can't chew as well uh, and might get impactions because of that. Um, there's a few, not so much breed things, but um, Tennessee walkers, actually it is breed. So Tennessee walkers, standardbreds have uh, reportedly larger inguinal rings, so back where the testicle comes through in the stallion, they're a little bit more likely uh, to have inguinal hernia. That's where the intestine gets stuck right down there where the, where the scrotum is. So a few things like that. Do you think of any other breed things, Louise? It seems to be um, kind of like you started to describe um, that certain breeds get certain types of colic. Um, you know, with the, for example, I'm going to describe it, the epiploic foramen entrapment, taller breeds, you know, nephrosplenic entrapments, I'm saying the specific names, you know, um, you know, larger breeds like thoroughbreds, um, like you mentioned, the, the miniature horses and ponies with impactions, that sort of thing. So also, we have... the other one, that... go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Oh, sorry, oh, Dr. Other, I just... No, I was just thinking, um... The other one that pops to mind is probably not really breed per se, but thoroughbred broodmares um, have a high incidence of 
twisted large colon, um, yeah. particularly after following. So that would be another example. Well, Dr. Blixlugger, we have a follow-up question from Crystal in our live audience, and she has two miniature horses, and she wants to know if colic is the same in minis as it is in full-size horses, and is there anything different that she should look for in her minis? Um, I would have to say that I really treat it and look for it and evaluate it very similarly. Um, I have to be honest as a veterinarian and say that I do think of them a bit more like ponies. So I get a bit more concerned about some other things that can be associated with colic. So for example, they can have some metabolic uh, problems, uh, high blood glucose levels and lipid metabolism problems that can go along with it. Um, the question may relate to are they more stoic? I think uh, if you think a little bit more like you might think of a pony, some of them can be more stoic. Uh, that sort of goes along in general with knowing no matter what breed or what kind, you're knowing your horse, uh, whether it's miniature or otherwise, and knowing their normal behavior and then really trying to read them and understand that individual horse. Hope that helps. Um, we have another question from our live audience, Dr. Uh, Southwood. I'll give this one to you. It's from Lisa, and she says that her vet is an hour away. What are some things that she can do to help her horse if he does colic, and what can she do to assist her vet uh, when he arrives? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough situation that the vet's an hour away, and I'm presuming any sort of a referral center is, is even further away. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of a little bit controversial, but I think um, walking the horse um, is, is, you know, one thing that you can do. And some gas colics um, will, you know, they'll work through it um, with that. Um, you can talk to, I think, talking to your veterinarian and having that sort of conversation with them and seeing what they would recommend. Um, one thing that you might um, you talk to them about is having on board some of the banamine paste that you can do to try to give the horse to try and um, alleviate um, some of that pain um, while you're waiting for the vet. Um, you know, getting information to the vet about, you know, heart rate that we already talked about, heart rate, rate respiratory rate, that sort of thing um, can sort of, you know, help your vet as well. Um, but it's, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of tough situation. And also being able to talk to your vet, you know, about, you know, what signs the horse is showing to give them some sort of indication um, of how bad this is, um, is good because, you know, rather than, sometimes rather than waiting for your vet to come an hour out, evaluate the horse, sometimes it might be a good idea to sort of get on the road um, and get the horse to a referral center or a surgical facility um, if your vet deems that it's bad enough. So sometimes, you know, as owners, we take a, a wait and see approach. So if you're out in a rural area and away from your vet, is it more important to contact them immediately and let them know, or are you going to drive them nuts by calling them every time your horse <laughs> seems a little not okay? I think I think having a conversation with them, I mean, it's, it sort of depends. You're going to, I think, um, you know, like Anthony just said, um, you're going to get to know your horse a little bit. And yeah, there are some horses that, you know, every Tuesday, you know, they go off their feet and they have mild the colic well and I think work with your vet have a discussion with them maybe giving that horse a little bit of banamine paste might be a good idea but um, if it's anything that's more serious having that conversation with your vet ahead of time and sort of you know as a team coming to a decision yeah I should wait for my vet or no you know what this sounds a little more serious I need to get on the road um, you know to get it to the horse to a hospital is is valuable so I'm going to recommend that you you have a conversation with your veterinarian Dr. Blixlugger, we have a question from Chuck in our live audience. So Dr. Southwood mentioned walking the horse. Uh, Chuck wants to know, is it best to keep a horse up and moving when it's colicking? Um, Chuck says that two veterinarians recently mentioned that this might be old school and that current studies show that you might be doing more harm than good by keeping the horse walking. Do you have any insight on that? I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, so I think one thing to think about is that uh, one reason to walk a horse is to it takes their mind off it a little bit. And what one thing that you're trying to do is prevent them from hurting themselves. So 
certainly you don't, if that horse is violently painful, um, you really need then to take your own uh, health into consideration more so in that situation. So it's not the scenario where if a, a horse is actively rolling that you really want to be getting in amongst all those legs. But generally when it starts, I think it really helps to walk. There's actually also a little bit of thinking on the science behind that. So they're thinking that if you think about the way horses uh, evolve, they're um, sort of nomadic animals. They walk most of the day they're supposed to uh, in the natural situation for about 18 hours a day. And there's some thought that actually may be linked into uh, the mobility of the gut. Um, so those would be the, the, the most important things. On the other hand, if the horse is getting overly walked and the, the horse is getting exhausted and the owner is also getting exhausted that's when it just becomes too much so i always try to remember to give owners a time frame like let's just walk the horse for 15 20 minutes and then um make a decision based on on what's happening after that this is presuming i'm already on the way or, or something like that i had a i have to tell you this one very brief story of where the reason that the time swing thing is important is because I got a call in the middle of the night once and this owner said that she'd been walking her horse. And I said, okay, that's good. No poor colic, that's good. And she said, yeah, but I didn't really know for how long. And I said, oh, okay, so how long have you been doing it? And she said, well, it's got to be about two and a half hours. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just have to remember always that you got to always kind of set these parameters, you know, make a plan, time frame, what you're going to do. When you're not going to walk them is when you're going to get hurt. I um, mean, you need to just get out of the way, um, and and yeah, those kind of things. Um, we have a question from our live audience. It's from Barbara, and she said that she moved to coastal North Carolina recently, and I and was concerned about sand colic risk. But the uh, she boards at a large barn, and they say they've never seen any sand colic cases there. How common is sand colic, and is it worth using psyllium uh, supplements to help minimize sand colic risk? Um, and we'll go ahead and give that to you, Dr. Southwood. Okay, um, it's regional. I'm going to let um, Dr. Blixlager answer how common it is in North Carolina, because that's okay. where he is. But um, yeah. You know, in, uh, I mean, I can just answer for our area, it is. I'm not necessarily in Pennsylvania per se, but, you know, Maryland, New Jersey, you know, all the beach areas. Um, you know, I think one of the other questions was how, you know, useful um, is psyllium. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty contentious issue sort of among surgeons. Like, does it work? Does it do anything? Um, I think the big thing with it is it doesn't hurt them. Um, it's not super expensive expensive um, and so giving it um, can potentially be helpful um, and the other thing is there has been some studies looking at psyllium um, and how it clear you know can clear the sand from the gastrointestinal tract um, and what some of those studies found and they were from northern Europe um, they found that tubing the horse rather than just feeding it so if you think your horse has problems with sand so this isn't necessarily prevention but um, it's treating horses with you know, signs of sand colic, um, you know, actually tubing them with the psyllium and adding either magnesium sulfate or mineral oil actually improved the clearance of sand compared to just feeding them. Um, you know, but like I said, there's other studies that have shown it doesn't really do anything. Um, but the main thing is I don't think the psyllium hurts um, the horse and, um, and it, it may have a benefit. And as far as how common it is in beach areas, so in sandy areas, I think it is fairly common and it's not, and it can actually cause acute colic, um, but it can also cause um, chronic colic. Um, it can cause diarrhea, poor performance, um, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing if the horse has that chronic um, ingestion of sand. Um, I'm gonna let you, um, Anthony, talk about North Carolina. Yeah. Well, um... Uh, it's, you know, I can't give you a percentage, but it's a fair a number of the cases that we see are from the coastal region, and um, quite a few of them are sand colics. Um, the ones that we get most typically are the ones where they've more than likely been ingesting sand over a prolonged period of time, and then it finally gets to the point uh, where it uh, it, it tends to collect in this one particular part of the large colon and block that area, and then they get more painful. So if we know a horse 
is coming from the coastal region, um, really regardless of, of the how the colic looks, how the horse looks, we'll take a couple of fecal balls, put them in a palpation sleeve, and then add some water, and then just hang it up. Uh, and what will happen is you'll see the sand actually sift out of the fecal balls down into the fingers of the glove, if that makes sense. It doesn't, it doesn't actually tell you whether the, the sand is causing a problem in that horse, but at least you know that there is some sand there and you can be thinking about that. And the, as far as um, the farms uh, or boarding facilities that tend to have more of a problem with it uh, are going to be the ones where they are fed off the ground and they're more densely uh, housed. So the grass gets kind of low, because uh, generally horses are pretty good at, at sorting out what they eat, but when the grass gets really low or perhaps even in a, uh, like a dry lot, then they can start nibbling on the, the what's left there and get inside ingesting sand. I agree, by the way, on the comments of the psyllium. I mean, I didn't think it hurts either, and I don't know that we know the final answer. I think potentially feeding it uh, every day uh, is, uh, it could be quite helpful. Yeah, so we did receive uh, quite a few questions about psyllium, and we have some coming in now from the live audience. Do you have any recommendations on frequency? Is, is it daily? Because if some of the questions people were asking, should I do this every month? Should I do it every week, every six months, um, only during the summer? Um, Dr. Blixlager, do you have recommendations? Is it daily that, that you'd recommend it? I, you know, I, I do recommend that. I have a couple of go-to uh, supplements in mind that have uh, psyllium included with them. So you have a lot of different options. You can just buy straight Psyllium, you know, we generally recommend not the more expensive stuff that people take because that's got some sugar in it, but just the straight sort of industry-grade psyllium. You could just top dress the feed with it because quite, quite honestly, nobody really knows the amount. And then if you look around on the web, you'll see there's actually quite a few different formulations of psyllium that you can take a look at. Like, for example, there's one that also has uh, another uh, thing that we get a lot of questions on some some pre or probiotics in it. Um, nobody knows exactly which one to pick over the other. Um, so there's some sort of art of sales all wrapped up in that. But there's lots of choices. Um, I would tend to go with a product where there's some some veterinary backup or support to that product that you can ask them. And, and I, we we oh sorry go ahead. No sorry I I interrupted. Oh no, we usually still stick stick with the just the the psyllium rather than with any probiotics. And I don't know if there's any science behind this, but we still recommend um, the cup a day for a week out of each month. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Anthony, if you know of any science behind that, but that's what we've kind of always, you know, sort of stuck to. I think it's this idea of that there's going to, there's potentially some sand there, and you're just trying to clear it for that period yeah. of time. And I, and I think a recommendation like that would make perfect sense. I think what becomes difficult is then, especially for a boarding facility, they just have to remember which horse is getting which supplement. Um, so I, you know, I don't think there'd be any harm in doing it more, but you, that's kind of like a, a little bit more like a periodic clearance protocol. Dr. Southwood, you earlier in one of your responses mentioned taking a horse to a referral center for um, when they're colicking. We have a follow-up question from our live audience. Jessie wants to know what precautions should she take if she's tra traveling with a colicking horse to a referral center? Actually, that's an excellent question. Um, so if you do have a horse, you know, that's very painful, um, kind of anticipate that the horse is probably going to go down on the trailer. Um, so any dividers, anything like that, take them out and preferably don't tie the horse's head so that they can actually, you know, if they want to go down in the trailer, let them go down. Um, where we sometimes get into trouble is, you know, if the dividers are up, um, you know, or if the dividers, you know, you can't remove the dividers, um, actually trying to get the horse out of the trailer when it's down, once it gets there can be, um, you know, super challenging. You know, other than that, I mean, ideally you do want to get a veterinarian to, you know, see the horse ahead of time. But once again, you know, if the referral center is an hour and a half away and the vet's an hour away, you know, and the horse is very painful, 
um, and seems critical, you know, you know, you sort of have to do what you have to do. But I think that's the biggest thing is, is getting the divider out and kind of anticipating what's going to happen, you know, on the other, on the other end, as far as getting the horse off the trailer and let the referral center know as well, um, you know, that the horse have a conversation with them and just let them know, you know, look, this horse is really painful. You know, maybe you've given it some banamine, um, and, you know, so they can kind of be prepared when the horse arrives. Can there be a point where the horse is too violent to yeah, put in the trailer? Yeah, it can be. And that's honestly, that's where, you know, that's sort of a really tough situation, um, you know, because ideally sedating the horse heavily to get them, you know, on the trailer. Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of the situation. Uh, honestly, occasionally we still have horses arrive, you know, especially if they've got like a strangulation, so the blood supply is cut off to their intestine. You know, they arrive on the trailer sort of on their back, you know, um, hopefully not stuck on the trailer. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, sedation is usually what we need. And you, as an owner, you might not have that available to you. Um, but I think if you can get them on the trailer, most of the time, you know, a lot of really painful horses, they will go down on the trailer, um, you know, um, and the key thing is one, like um, Anthony already said, stay safe. You've got, you've got to make sure you stay, stay safe. Um, and I sort of cringe when owners say they're riding in the back of the trailer oh, with the horse. Yeah. I mean, that's, mm. that's besides being illegal, that's um, definitely not safe. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, sometimes you've just got to, you know, make the best of a bad situation. And, you know, sometimes you get the painful horse on the trailer and, you know, get it to wherever it can. Um, but the dividers tend to be the biggest problem, I would say. So you should probably know how to get those dividers out of your trailer out. ahead yeah, of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and we recently had a horse got its leg under the divider. And usually what happens, even if the dividers are removable, um, if the horse gets wedged in there, you can't safely get them out. And so actually being able to get, you know, have everything out, you know, the horse is down. Most of the time you can sort of safely get access. So the horse, ideally, and this doesn't always happen, you might do the best you can, and by the time you get there, it's not if you can have the horse's head somewhere near some sort of a door so that people can get access, you know, to its vein, you know, when they get there to sedate it, that sort of thing. But that doesn't always happen because the horse is going to turn around and, um, you know, when it goes down. Um, but they're, wow. they're really tough situations. Um, and, you know, if you have the opportunity, if you have the opportunity, getting, you know, anticipating getting the horse to a referral center before it gets that bad is ideal, but that doesn't, definitely does not always happen. Yeah. Um, we have a question, Dr. Blixlogger, I'll give this to you. It's from our live audience. Lisa wants to know if uh, colic risk increases as horses age, and if so, what are the reasons for this? Um, some of them, some of the more, I mean, generally, not not per se with age, but there's a few things that come along with age. So one of the most important considerations would be their teeth. So just thinking of really simple things like that. So um, generally speaking, because we are feeding um, hay instead of them eating grass all the time, they can be that it can be that much more likely that they'll not be able to chew as well. And then when they can't chew as well, they can develop impactions uh, more readily. There's a few age-related um, diseases you can't actually do. Well, there's one in particular you can't really do that much about as far as you know. So horses um, can develop these lipomas, just these little fatty lumps uh, inside their belly, and, and they have a stalk with them. And so once they get to about the age of 15 and over, they're in this category where they're a little bit more likely to get what's called a strangulating lipoma. But that's uh, uh, what would generally be referred to as an intestinal accident, meaning not something you could have really foreseen or done anything about. The only thing I think about related to that is um, definitely look at their condition. Make sure they certainly make sure they're in good condition. So you want to be able to feel the ribs but not see them. Uh, but you don't want them overweight. It's the only thing I can think of that could reduce that particular problem. Um, that's the, those are the main things that come to mind as far as age. The one other thing that I get a question on sometimes is, so once they get into their mid to late 20s, they're, so they're in the geriatric range, people will ask, you know, can they survive 
surgery, for example. I mean, can they go through all of that? And and actually, they can, seemingly all the way up until they get, um, depending on the horse, but until they get into their very late twenties or early thirties, and then some horses finally get to the point where it's really quite uh, hard on them, and they they don't recover as well. Um, and we have a related question, uh, Dr. Southwood. Uh, we have. Um, Helen in Ontario, Canada had a 29-year-old mare who just had her first episode of colic. Is she now at risk to colic more? So once our horses colic once, are they more likely to do it again? Yeah, I think, gosh, if the horse is 29 and made it that that old without colicking, I think that's awesome. Um, I think it's yeah. really good. And um, gosh, kudos to, the, kudos to the owner for managing that horse. Um, so it kind of depends on the cause. So just in general, um, a lot of people have looked at this. So there's been studies, you know, looking large numbers of horses. And generally, generally speaking, yes, horses that colic are more likely to um, colic again. Um, but you've got to sort of look a little bit more closely at the individual. Um, so for example, a geriatric horse or a 29-year-old horse that maybe had an impaction or something, that, like, um, you know, Dr. Blixlager just said, you know, look at the teeth, um, you know, look at the time of year, if it was the middle of winter and maybe it was kind of not a great batch of hay, you know, maybe that horse, you know, um, can't continue to eat hay and needs some, needs his teeth done or needs some other sort of diet, you know, that hopefully it's a one-off, one-off thing um, uh, with that horse, you know, especially if it's 29 and it's just got an impaction in the middle of winter. Um, that being said, you know, there's definitely, you know, horses, probably about, you know, 15% of horses with displacements, you know, and twisted colons um, can have recurrence of those problems. And horses that aren't, have undergone colic surgery um, have been shown, you know, to have more problems with colic as well, you know, sort of long term. Although, once again, it's, it's still, you know, as far as colic being a problem, um, you know, it's it's still a fairly low incidence. You're sort of in the in the kind of 15% range. Um, Dr. Blixlager, we have a question from Denise in our live audience, and she wants to know if horses that are fed grain or uh, feed concentrates are more likely to colic than horses that are fed hay only. I'd have to say overall, yes. I mean, it, it, again, you know, there's um, there's only so much you can do sometimes managing a horse in terms of of how you feed them, but just simplistically, they're really designed for grass, obviously, and then the next best thing, hay, and so just we're, we call that forage overall. So they're um, that's how they evolve. But now that we've got these breeds that are, especially some of the finer breeds, um, thoroughbreds, for example, and, or in particular can't keep the weight on them or keep them in good condition without now adding concentrate. So I think the most sensible thing then is you build the diet up so that you um, essentially max out the amount of forage and make sure it's really good quality forage. And then for additional conditioning of the horse, that's where you add in the concentrate. Most concentrates now, so we talk about grain, you know, originally it would have been oats or corn, um, barley, but these days they're pretty clever. They're usually um, like pelleted rations are, are far more common and frequently they'll have a little bit of roughage in there with them. So we're trying all the time to provide increased energy um, to the horse so they can keep in condition without going too far with the, uh, with the grain. What happens, by the way, what's, that, what's really going on there is if, so if you can imagine, I mean, uh, uh, the horse is designed to get whatever they eat down to their large colon pretty quickly um, and because that's where it would ordinarily get digested all the way down to the colon. So if you feed um, a high grain diet, it's a little bit like feeding uh, a soluble sugar and it can get down into the colon and then gets more rapidly uh, uh, metabolized by different kinds of bacteria that can produce gas. So um, once a horse gets used to it, that, that's much better. But that's generally speaking why that becomes problematic. Uh, it's just not something they're as well built for. 
Um, Dr. Southwood, we have a question from Linda in our live audience, and she wants to know if a horse that's colicking should be allowed to roll, even if it's rolling violently, and does it matter what type of the of colic the horse is having and whether or not you allow the horse to roll? I don't think, um, you know, and I haven't got any sort of data on this, I don't think necessarily making them roll makes the colic worse. Um, so, and I don't, I don't think anybody would be, you know, concerned about that. So I don't think, you know, not letting them roll, um, or I don't think allowing them to roll is a problem that it's going to make it worse. Um, you've, I mean, the big concern is that they're going to injure themselves. But more importantly, I think as an owner, um, you don't want to get hurt because a lot of those horses, when they're violently painful, they're not going to be thinking about you. They're just, they're just thinking, you know, they're in so much pain. Um, you know, and as an owner, you could potentially get hurt. So, you know, if that's the case, you know, close the stall door, get, if you can get any buckets out, you know, any feeders out, so, and, and then just let them be until, you know, a veterinarian can, uh, you know, arrive. Um, but I don't think it's going to make them worse. Now, there's some diseases you could argue, um, sometimes these horses can get their colon um, stuck up over their spleen, okay, spleen on the left side next to their body wall and their colon, for whatever reason, gets stuck up over their spleen. And sometimes rolling, um, they can actually correct that um, with rolling. Um, so that's an example. That's one example. Probably affects, you know, less than 5% of horses with colic overall. But um, that's one example where rolling could potentially be beneficial. But other than the horse injuring itself, I don't think it's going to make the colic worse. I agree. And I, you know, the other interesting thing you can do so when they really want to go down, I remember in the old days, um, it will be common for people to kind of beat on them almost to get them to stand up. And that actually is not necessary. So if the horse wants, in all instances, if the horse wants to lie down, that's fine. And, it, and, and again, it's also, it's not going to make it worse by rolling. Um, some horses, uh, and Dr. Southwood mentioned this before, because they'll arrive actually in the, to the hospital upside down. Some horses will prefer to be upside down. So you'll let them loose in a stall, for instance, and then they'll roll and seem to be thrashing a bit, and then they'll get up against one side and just stay there on their backs. And that's potentially because they can get the weight off the intestines, you know, back down toward the back. So that would be for those more severe cases actually a bit more optimal is to have them be down and quiet rather than trying to get in there and get them up. Yep. The ones that are really badly thrashing, ultimately, you know, Dr. Seth, we went through this before, but there are sometimes horses don't, won't even respond to medications and you just, as, as she mentioned, do, do the best you can, don't get yourself hurt and wait till the vet arrives. We have a question from Ellie in our live audience. Uh, Dr. Southwood, I'll give this one to you. She wants to know if there are any early clinical signs that would differentiate between a colic that needs medical treatment and a colic that needs surgical treatment. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think sometimes early it can be tough. Um, the, some of the things um, you know, and this is sort of, I mean, gosh, it, it you know, they continue to surprise me, right? Um, when a horse comes in, and I think oh, we're going to get it clean, it ends up needing surgery and vice versa. I think the big thing is, though, is the level of the horse's pain. Um, so, and, the, and what you're trying to differentiate very early on is does the horse have either a medical colic or a non-strangulating type of lesion, like a displacement or an impaction, or does it have an strangulation? And the strangulations, and the strangulation is when the blood supply is cut off. That's a really serious colic. Um, and the sooner you get them treated surgically, you know, the better the outcome. And so trying to differentiate those two, the things that I look for is the degree of pain, how painful the horse is. A lot of times, you know, for example, a horse with an impaction, they might be off their feet, they might be laying down a little bit, looking at their flank. Usually a horse with a strangulation, at least at some point, has been very painful. Um, you know, they've been thrashing around, they have abrasions on their head, um, they're sweaty. Um, if you can get a heart rate, their heart rate's often increased. Um, that, to me, especially the abrasions, 
um, you know, to me as a surgical case until I prove other, otherwise. Um, versus the sort of more low-grade off-feed, pawing, you know, that makes, especially if it's in the middle of winter, that makes me think more likely an impaction um, or, you know, a displacement, something like that. So looking at sort of the, the degree of pain and then obviously, you know, if you give the horse flonix and megalomin or your vet comes out and gives them treatment, looking at the response to treatment, if a horse is painful, you've given it some sort of pain medications and it stays painful, that makes me more concerned about um, you know, a surgical problem. So the degree of pain, you know, including looking at abrasion, sweating. I mentioned earlier nostril flare. Some of these more stoic horses, um, especially older horses, tend to be a little stoic, you know, so they're not necessarily, they might have some abrasions on their eyes, so you know they're pain painful at some point, and you're looking at them, and you look at their nostrils, and they're, they're breathing faster, and they're breathing heavier, and their nostrils are flared. Um, that to me is an indication that there's more going on than what they're telling you. And then obviously abdominal distension. I always get concerned, you know, when they're really bloated, um, that they might um, have a surgical lesion as well. Okay. Um, we have a question from Ruth in our live audience, and she wants to know, in a backcountry setting where transport to a vet isn't possible, how much banning pace should you consider giving a horse and and just to frame this for for people who might not live out west um, you know there are places where you can ride in the backcountry out here where if you were to come off your horse or have an accident a helicopter would have to come evacuate you helicopters can't evacuate our horses so what what can we do for them uh, when we have these situations um, Dr. Blixover, uh, do you want to take that one? Yeah, it's just such a difficult question. I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I can't remember the amount of pace because I'm so used to giving it IV. So on the, when you read that tube, it's uh, the, the high-end dose is uh, uh, 500 milligrams. So you can look on there and see, it'll tell you. And, and what it also might say is so many, uh, so much per pound. Um, uh, I think, though, the the one thing that, you know, people ask about other analgesics, should they take them because they're going on one of these big backcountry trips and they're not going to be able to evacuate the horse very easily. Um, you're really uh, in a bind there because it's not really, so I think just some banamine pace, but then it's not going to save a horse that, that still needs to get somewhere to have something else done with it, particularly those that get to the severe end of the scale and ultimately need surgery. Um, it's more like trying to differentiate. So for the simple, more milder colic, those ones I think you're going to be able to manage. The other ones, um, I don't know that I've been in a place where I couldn't. I'm trying to think of it. Yeah, there have been some riding ties nearby where there was a horse that got stuck on the top of a mountain in uh, Virginia and they just uh, couldn't get it out. Uh, it, that really gets down to principles of horse rescue. Uh, you can, you're more reliant then on first responders and, and trying to essentially evacuate that horse. Um, uh, to be perfectly honest, it's coming out the same way you got in there. Uh -huh. um, I, the other thing, another thing to think about, so a lot of people get really worried that, well, then, all right, so now you, honestly, you're going to have to be walking that horse and um, uh, I certainly wouldn't suggest airlifting it, but at some point uh, on that trail, you can get a truck and trailer, and it doesn't really matter um, in terms of the trailer. The best trailers in many scenarios are just a, uh, just an older, bigger stock trailer, just something really simple. Um, so I think what I would do if I looked at something like that is try to pre-plan, okay, where am I going? What's the worst case scenario? How am I going to get that horse? out of there. Um, I don't have anything other than that to add. And, and the only thing, and nobody, you know, we don't like to talk about this, but, you know, if you are in a place, you know, in the middle of Montana or something and, and you can't, there's no way you can get to a surgical facility. A vet can get out there. I mean, euthanasia is an option. Um, you know, for horses with severe colic, um, you know, and some people, you know, make that decision by choice, you know, they don't want to have, you know, their horse go through surgery or whatever, um, and others, you know, make it, but, you know, sometimes it's financial, and sometimes it's just situational, you know, like I can't get the horse to a surgical facility, and so, you know, that's 
you know, obviously a veterinarian is a controlled substance, a veterinarian needs to do that, but um, that is that is always an option. Well, and thinking back to Ruth's question, so if you are out in the back country and you're riding, and your horse starts having clinical signs that something's wrong, how do you differentiate between like a colic or maybe your horse is tying up because of the exertion on that trail? Um, Dr. Blixlugger, do you have any input on that and how you may or may not um, manage that horse until you get a vet involved? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, um, because if it was tying up then you wouldn't want to exercise it anymore. So just, uh, those things though sometimes can appear pretty similar so it certainly with the horses tying up it's going to look a little uncomfortable but not typically pawing not typically looking at its flanks um, more appearing sort of more rigid and when you uh, they frequently are sweating um, and then the muscles are typically pretty hard and so they really look like they're reluctant to move um, and so in that case then that's going to be better if at all possible, to not move the horse so much and to try to get some uh, uh, somebody to come up there and help you rehydrate it. If it was a veterinarian, they can. There's some some medications that you can use for tying up horse, and but frequently you also have to consider how well hydrated they are, and then how you're going to get that uh, that corrected. So on those trails, they frequently become dehydrated and sometimes have electrolyte problems that that have to be dealt with. So that will be nasogastric tube and buckets and things like that. Um, but that, but just by trying to gauge whether it really looks like colic versus a horse that's more um, reluctant to move with these really kind of harder muscles. Uh, Dr. Southwood, we have a question from Mike in our live audience, and Mike wants to know if a horse is a long way out, would giving mineral oil to your horse help? And if yes, do you mix it with water, and how much? Um, I would. So, you know, the whole mineral oil with colic is once again, it's one of those things. Uh, does it do anything or not? It kind of depends on on who you talk to. I think, you know, we mostly give mineral oil. Um, as a marker of, you know, intestinal transit. When we see the mineral oil coming out in the manure, we know that it's gone through. Does it help colic? Uh, I don't really know. One thing I will say, it should be given, it really should be given by a veterinarian via a stomach tube. Um, you don't want to syringe your horse with oil or, you know, anything. Like, actually, you probably should try and avoid syringing your horse, you know, to get it to drink, you know, with too much. Because what can happen if it's not given properly and they aspirate it into their airway, um, that can cause a really severe, like almost universally fatal um, pneumonia. So you do have to be careful with it. Um, you know, as far as putting it in the water or anything, I don't, I don't think that they, they drink it. Um, but you know, as far as you know, sort of what to do if you're an owner, um, you know, and your horse is colicking, should you just give them oil? I would probably hold off until your veterinarian comes. Um, Dr. Blixlugger, we have a question from Diane in our live audience, and she wants to know if feeding alfalfa or alfalfa cubes increase colic risk. Not, uh, not necessarily, but I think whenever you're thinking about a particular feed, or in this case, a particular type of hay, um, horses just need, they need to get used to it. So it will be more a case of um, not making a rapid switch. So, uh, and then also realizing that most or many horses don't necessarily need a forage quite that high quality. Like if it's a really uh, super rich alfalfa from um, up in the northeast or else out in the west, um, that's pretty high energy feed. And so it, uh, it, it may not be what your horse needs. But so having all that said all of that, so the general rule is if you're going to make a switch, so let's just say you want to start feeding alfalfa for, for you know, perhaps you need some more energy in, in the horse that you have, or you're going to start feeding alfalfa cubes, just make that switch really gradually. Give yourself, you know, a good seven to 10 days to, to, to switch that over. What you're um, doing then is you're allowing that horse to, to internally get used to it and, and, Quite literally, what's going to happen is there, the bacteria and the other organisms in their colon are going to kind of 
change over and adapt to that uh, different kind of hay. We get that a lot when um, we have horses that come in to uh, have surgery, and then particularly if it's a severe uh, case, then they may not they be may be held off feed for uh, uh, up to a day or so. And then often, just as a nice way to get them jump started again, we will actually preferentially feed them alfalfa, but we just start with a handful or two a day, and then gradually build it up. And then, if we know the horse is going to go on to their the, a different hay at home, let's say they're on an orchard grass or something, we'll give very careful instructions. Um, we'll begin to make that transition in the hospital and give them uh, instructions as to how to make that conversion back to the regular hay at home. We have a question, Dr. Blixlager, about uh, feeding a horse after a colic episode. Uh, Helen wants to know if you would recommend feeding a bran mash after colic? Um, I think that, I mean, a brand, I think there's no problem with a bran mash. I mean, it's generally regarded as a bit more of a, of a laxative feed, sort of an easier thing to get them started on. It, uh, it's not necessarily my preference. So, so to be honest, what I prefer to do to get them started. So let's just say you had a horse yesterday with a uh, colic and now you've held it off feed overnight and you want to get it going again. For me, the absolute best thing always is going to be grass. So if you can go graze them for, um, to start with. And then uh, really my preference is to get, if there's no grass or else you don't want to overload them on grass, the next thing is then hay. That's, simplistically how I tend to think of it. I don't know that uh, there's anything, I guess I would say, particularly magical about a brand mash. And we have another brand mash question, and it's from Jackie in Utah, and she wants to know if you feel feeding a brand mash on nights of sudden temperature changes is helpful for a horse, or is the sudden change in diet actually causing more problems? Yeah, that would sort of feed in a little bit to that prior answer. So I would just rather not make a change like that. Um, I think the concern there, so generally what's happening with sudden changes in temperature, changes in weather, I always try to think it's not necessarily the weather per se, it's what the horse might do differently. So if it's a sudden drop in temperature, they're less likely to drink. So um, the sort of thing to do there is make sure, rather than do a dietary switch of any kind, just make sure uh, that they're drinking enough. And if they're not drinking enough, some, one simple thing to do is just give them warm water. That will work. Another thing you can do is add a little bit of salt to the feed. But I would rather stay away from the, from the diet changes. Dr. Southwood, we have a question from Sadie in our live audience, and she wants to know if ulcers are a concern if a horse has been off feed for a span of time due to colic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, potentially the challenge with, so, you know, sort of one of the most, um, you know, ulcers, so, you know, to create ulcers, to study them is to hold a horse off feed and give them, you know, a drug like butylbanamine. Um, so definitely, you know, if they've been off feed, um, they can get ulcers. Um, whether they're clinically relevant ulcers, ulcers can be challenging because they can have a few very small ones that are sort of that heal quickly and are clinically irrelevant um, versus the horses that have ulcers that typically cause, you know, more problems, colic signs, poor performance. They're usually quite a bit more severe and just holding them off feed for a couple of days usually doesn't cause those really, really severe ulcers. Um, but, um, but sure it can. Um, and if you're concerned about it, you know, um, you know, omeprazole, gastrogard um, is what we, if we're concerned about ulcers, you know, in any of the patients we have with colic, you know, gastrogard or omeprazole is the, is the, you know, the drug in that. And use, also use of crowfate or carafate as well. And Dr. Southwood, we have a related question from uh, Maria in Santa Rosa, California. And she says ulcers and colic sometimes go hand in hand. What's the best way to maintain a horse with a, a history of ulcers so that they don't colic in the future? Yeah, that's kind of tough. I mean, that's something that's, um, you know, a couple of things with that. You know, obviously, you know, maintaining them on gastrogar 
add, you know, crow feet as well, which kind of coats the stomach and the, you know, the lower esophagus, um, you know, can make them feel a little bit more immediately comfortable. The other thing is there's been some research re recently that's shown that alfalfa hay can actually, um, you know, help with ulcers. You know, so that's one um, type of horse that you might want to try and manage, um, you know, on alfalfa hay. The other thing is, it's, I mean, this is an area that's really interesting to me is, you know, is the, are the ulcers um, actually causing the colic or does the horse have, you know, something else going on? Um, you know, and that would, you know, to kind of discern that you'd have to, you know, get the horse evaluated. But I've had definitely had some horses that have had problems with their colon, you know, especially horses with recurrent colic that, you know, also have um, ulcers as well. Dr. Blixlogger, we had a couple questions about broodmares and foaling and colic. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to condense two questions into one for you. Uh, Lauren in uh, California wants to know how to prevent a broodmare from colicking after she foals and what to look for after she foals to see if she might be colicking. Uh, you know, what, what are the signs we're looking for? Or how can we keep on, on top of that? And then um, we have another question uh, about uh, from John in North Carolina who wants to know if a previous colic surgery in a broodmare is a contraindication for future pregnancies. Um, I think uh, just just briefly, what's happening at that point, either they're just getting ready to fall or more typically they have just folded. So there's all of a sudden uh, all this room that where the fold used to be. And so now the, the colon is a little bit more likely to get out of place. And then the other thing is uh, uh, frequently they've been brought up to, uh, they're in a stable, they fold out, and then now they're fed differently because they're lactating. Um, the sort of colic that we worry about most of all in broodmares uh, around the time of following is called large colon volvulus or large colon torsion. So the thing to look for is, uh, um, you know, a broodmare is supposed to fall out rapidly um, and look really pretty normal and upright afterwards. Um, they don't typically lie down. They don't uh, typically show any signs of colic because of falling. So you go back to the basics again, you're looking for any signs of colic, and then as far as large colon volumes, anything particularly that's building up really quickly. It's when Dr. Southwood said before, watch out for that level of pain, especially in a broodmare. Uh, in Kentucky, they've had the, probably the most experience with this. They, they really move fast with those horses because you don't have a lot of time to, to intervene. As far as then, if you've had a broodmare that's had colic before, I think I would just, it wouldn't be a contraindication to breed it. Sometimes they're hard to get bred back that first year if, they, if they've had surgery, but, they, but their success rate returns pretty much to normal by the subsequent year. It's not contraindicated. I think mostly I would just try to learn from it, try to change anything that had gone wrong that first time, maybe related to feeding or stabling. Um, and then one other thing I'll mention, uh, I know we just have a minute left, is that in broodmares, and that's their sole job in life, um, because of this large colon twisting problem, they will, uh, they will often think about tacking the colon to the body wall so it can't twist. And I'm going to try to sneak one more question in before our hour is over. Dr. Southwood, Shannon sent in a question via email, and she wants to know what are some old wives' tales regarding colic treatment, and can they do more harm than good for our horses? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Some of the ones that come to mind for me that I've heard of, um, and this is mostly stories from vets out in the field, but, you know, putting a garlic or an you know a garlic clove or onion in their rectum I've heard vets go out and you know they go to rectal the horse and there's garlic or you know onion um, in their rectum um, Worcestershire sauce via a nasogastric tube various alcoholic beverages um, I don't think I, I, I mean you know I don't think any of them necessarily hurt per se um, keeping in mind that 70 plus percent of horses with colic get better anyway and so some of these old wives tales that these 
you know, remedies work, um, you know, the horse probably would have got better anyway. The key thing is, um, you know, when using it, various other things, um, we don't want to delay appropriate treatment. Um, we really, um, I don't think any of them necessarily work, but we don't want to delay um, treatment, especially of a horse with a strangulation. And so sometimes messing around with some of these other, you know, um, old wives' tales, you know, you can potentially delay getting your vet out, delay getting the horse the treatment that it needs. Well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for tonight. I want to thank our audience for joining us and for sending in all the questions during registration and during our live event. Uh, I also want to thank uh, our sponsor, Nightwatch, which is the first smart halter for horses to monitor vital signs. Uh, I also want to thank Dr. Southwood and Dr. Glickslogger for all of your great responses to the questions. Thank you, Michelle, and, and thank you for everybody who participated. Yeah, and thanks for me too. Really uh, enjoyed the, the questions. I hope you can join us next month for Ask the Horse Live. Until then, from all of us here, have a great night. <laughs>